The Bob Murphy Show, episode 241. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show so first i want to apologize for the hiatus I'm going to have a lot of episodes coming out very soon over the next couple of weeks. And they're going to be me doing economic stuff because I can just get a moment and bang those things out. I do have a bunch of interviews lined up, but those are harder lately for me to coordinate. And so that's part of the reason for the uh, infrequent posting. But again, I think we're over the hump and you will be seeing lots of episodes coming up, including lots of fun economic issues. I recently was with Jeff Dice down in Orlando. And again, partly it's because of that trip is why I'm backed up with you folks. And for the the talk I gave there, I had a few themes that I'm going to unpack in episodes here on the podcast. One of which is just to try to tease you, give you a sense, give you something to look forward to, something to live for perhaps for some of you, is uh, I'm much more comfortable now in explaining why is it that the QE programs of the Fed after the financial crisis, you know, starting in the fall of 2008, how come that didn't lead to gasoline that was 460 or whatever it is around you? I mean, it's, it's about 470 now. How come that didn't happen back then? Why did it happen after the uh, coronavirus inflation, monetary inflation? And so, you know, it's one thing was just, oh, well, it's bigger numbers this time around. But that seemed funny to me because a bunch of us, me included, infamously, back when QE happened, thought that should have been enough to do it. And so just as I say, I think I have a much more nuanced understanding and I can walk you folks through that. Another thing that I talked about in Orlando that we'll unpack here in the podcast soon is that I don't think the Fed is actually really tightening yet. And I, I have you know a few different lines of evidence to show that. And so the fact that the markets were so crazy just from talk of Fed tightening when they really didn't even do anything should be alarming. All right, so what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about a Krugman column recently that touches on international trade. And there was one line he had that I really think uh, is misleading at best, perhaps just outright false at worst. And I wanted to focus on that, not just because, you know, some of you might say, so you're doing a whole episode because of one sentence in a crewman column that might just be misleading. Yes. Yes, I am. Thank you for clarifying. But no, the reason I'm doing it is I think it's important and you'll understand more about how trade works. And this is also something, ironically, it's not an issue. My disagreement with crewman on this one, it has nothing to do with Keynesian economics. In fact, this what I'll argue is mistake is something that even the Wall Street Journal did when they were giving a subtitle to a Robert Barrow op-ed, right? So just to ease your suspense, 
what it has to do with is sometimes in their zeal to explain why either the old mercantilists or the modern day Trumpers who think that a trade surplus is evidence of a win, you know, and the trade deficits are bad, like analogous to a corporate loss or something, because, you know, a lot of Trump's rhetoric, you get the sense that he thought if the U.S. has a trade deficit, that's the same thing at the national level as if you are running a company or corporation and the accountants told you that, oh, wow, we had an unprofitable quarter. You get the sense that that's what the Trump thinks a trade deficit is. And that's wrong. That's not the right way to think about it. But sometimes in their zeal to get readers to understand why a trade deficit isn't necessarily bad or unproductive or inefficient or uneconomical, economists sometimes make arguments that either imply or literally state that a trade surplus means you're getting the short end of the stick. And that's not correct. All right. So for me to get you to see all of that is the goal of this present episode. Okay, so the first thing I think I'll do is just go ahead and read you the relevant excerpt from Krugman's column. So the point is he's he's talking about Putin and he was saying, you know, the West's stranglehold on the Putin economy, something like that. And he goes through, and most of it is him talking about Putin and obviously he's, Krugman is very anti-Putin. But then here's the relevant excerpt that's of relevance to us. So let me just go ahead and read this whole thing first and then I'll unpack it. So Krugman writes, the effect of sanctions on Russia, hang on, let me back up. So the context is more specifically, he's saying, because you need to know this, otherwise it's not clear what Krugman's talking about here, that because a lot of European countries are still accepting Russian oil and gas exports, or from the Europeans' perspective, their imports from Russia, but there's all kinds of other sanctions in place, obviously, to not let weapons and military equipment get into Russia because they don't want them using it in the war effort against Ukraine. But also more generally, like companies in general might be afraid to do business with Russia and to send them stuff because, uh oh, what if, you know, some U.S. official rules that I'm helping the Russian government in the war effort and then I get penalized. So it's safer just to err on the side of don't send anything to Russia right now. Right. That's the idea. So what the effect that that has had, it, you know, from Russia's point of view, they're still allowed to sell oil and gas abroad, but it's hard for them to import stuff. And so what that's done is they're now running huge trade surpluses, right? Because they can sell more stuff to foreigners than foreigners can sell to them. That's what a trade surplus is. All right. So that's the context. So now here's Krugman talking about that. The effect of sanctions on Russia offers a graphic, if grisly, demonstration of a point economists often try to make but rarely manage to get across. Imports, not exports, are the point of international trade. That is, the benefits of trade shouldn't be measured by the jobs and incomes created in export industries. Those workers could, after all, be doing something else. The gains from trade come, instead, from the useful goods and services other countries provide to your citizens. And running a trade surplus isn't a win. If anything, it means that you're giving the world more than you get, receiving nothing but IOUs in return. Yes, I know that in practice there are caveats and complications to these statements. Trade surpluses can sometimes help boost a weak economy, and while imports make a nation richer, they may displace and impoverish some workers. But what's happening to Russia illustrates their essential truth. Russia's trade surplus is a sign of weakness, not strength. 
Its exports are, alas, holding up well despite its pariah status, but its economy is being crippled by a cutoff of imports. Okay, so let me first explain the sense in which I largely agree with what Krugman's writing here, but then I'll focus in on what I think is wrong. All right, so my point is, like, if I were teaching, it wouldn't be Econ 101. In fact, I don't think I've ever taught Econ 101. In fact, I don't think that was ever a course anywhere where I taught. I think it was always like 102, just so you know. But my point is, if some undergrad turned this in on an essay, it's not that I would say, oh my gosh, this is so bad. I would actually say, oh, this is pretty good. But I still would put a circle around the one sentence and say, now this one actually is a little bit off. All right. So don't misunderstand. I'm not saying this whole thing is utterly nuts. I get what Truman's largely saying here. And yeah, the spirit of it is correct. But again, in his zeal to get the point across, he actually overstepped, I think. Okay. So what's, what's correct about this? That yes, at a first pass, it makes sense for economists to tell the public, hey, when you're thinking about trade and the benefits of it, it's typical for the average person and certainly goaded by a populist politician to think that, oh, uh, trade is, it hurts us because imports come in and destroy our jobs, you know, especially if they're you know, really cheap imports and maybe foreign governments are subsidizing them, they're dumping it on us, at, you know, below cost prices. That's really hurt, harmful to us because it hurts our workers. But on the other hand, there's the flip side that if we're buying stuff from foreigners, maybe they'll buy stuff from us. And so trade is good in that sense, because sometimes, you know, if they, at least if they buy our stuff, then that gives employment to our workers and it helps expand our economy. Right. And so that's the way a lot of people think about if, if, if someone were to ask them, what are the benefits of international trade? They might frame it like that, that, oh yeah, the benefits to us are we get to sell the rest of the world our stuff. And so that provides employment for us and incomes. Whereas they would, so if that's the way you're thinking about it, then it kind of makes sense, the mirror image. Well, yeah, but then the downside, what's the cost of international trade? Oh, it's the fact that, you know, when we buy stuff from foreigners, if, if, if that's an option for our people, then it hurts our workers. And that's a downside, right? And so maybe the benefits of trade, you know, if you want to say, does trade on net help us? A lot of people might think, well, you know, not that they would go this to this spot on their own, but if someone kind of led them saying, well, you said this and then you said this, so they might end up saying to try to be maintain consistency. Well, gee, yeah, I guess if, if international trade helps us on net, it's got to be because the benefits of our exports outweigh the costs of our imports, something like that, right? So what I, I probably just did a faux pas because I just started out this analysis by teaching you the exact wrong thing. And that's what Krugman's point is here, the, the main point he's making, that no, what I just said is exactly backwards. It's the other way around. When you're thinking at it from a country level, the benefits of international trade have to do with the imports we get. The costs of international trade have to do with the exports we need to send abroad, right? So think of it this way. If somehow we could convince the rest of the world to send us goodies, right? You know, Japan sends us cars, China sends us all the little items that are in Walmart, Saudi Arabia sends us crude oil, Canada sends us crude comedy, right? If we could 
get all of those imports sent to us and the world never expected anything in return, that would be awesome, right? We would just, I mean, that's what empires want, right? When, <laughs> when uh, Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan or whoever goes abroad and conquers foreign lands, what do they make them do? They send tribute to the home country, to the empire's capital. It's not vice versa. It's not that you go abroad and conquer people and then say, now you better consume the things that our people make for you. No, it's you set up mining camps or whatever, plantations, and, and the colonies send stuff back to the motherland. That's the point. So even though the means are wrong, like the logic makes sense that if you conquer somebody else, you have them work for you and send you stuff. That's how you benefit in a narrow materialistic sense. Right. So that's in terms of the flow of goods and services, that's the way to think about it. Right. So in practice, the rest of the world won't do that, especially again, if it's voluntary, if they're going to be sending us goodies, you know, goods and services available for consumption in the near term, we must be giving them something in return, namely either current exports you know, we make stuff, goods and services that they want, and then it's a trade that way in the current period, or we send them claims on future exports from the U.S., you know, which, you know, can be financial assets that are denominated in dollars, for example, and that gives them the ability to buy U.S. exports down the road. All right, so whether you're doing it in terms of present or future goods, the point is, well, this is one way of framing it, exports are the way we pay for our imports. All right, so that's true. And just to unpack that a little bit more too, in case you're saying, well, wait a minute. It's in the long run, and, the, and again, on a first pass, just to get you to see the logic of it, you wouldn't want to look at all the workers in export industries and say, ah, that is the manifestation of the benefits of international trade. Because if we didn't have international trade, it's not as if those workers wouldn't be able to do anything. They could instead be employed producing goods and services for their neighbors, for people in their own country. Okay, so think of it this way. Imagine a country that's originally, you know, embedded in the web of international trade relations. And then all of a sudden a huge, a populist leader takes over and cuts the country off from all foreign trade. The workers who previously, you know, on the eve of that politician's election, the workers who had been employed in industries that sold things to foreigners, they would initially be thrown out of work. But then when wages and prices adjusted, they would eventually be rehired by firms that were sending, uh, selling goods and services to people in their own country. Okay, so it, there would be a disruption. But once the dust settled, again, and that would be easier if wages and prices were very flexible, if it was a free market economy besides the cutoff of foreign trade, they would still be working. So if anything, at best, what you would want to do is to, to look at the difference in the real wages they earned before and after the prohibition on foreign trade. And, and so, it, by the way, it would work out in practice that they would be learning lower wages measured in real terms after the prohibition, right? Because that would indicate the fact that their labor is less productive now. I mean, so the international trade fosters the division of labor where workers in each country can specialize in their comparative advantage. So their real wages are higher with the existence of international trade. 
But the point is, it's not, it's not employment per se, and it's not the full gross income that you would point to and say, oh, that's the benefit of trade. At best, you would say, oh, it's the difference between what could they earn if they worked catering to domestic consumers versus catering to international consumers. That would be the, you know, the, the difference there would be if you wanted to say that would be the benefit of trade. But more generally, again, as a first pass from a country level, the benefit of international trade is the fact that we can obtain goods and services from foreigners on better terms than if we had to produce them ourselves. And so with all this stuff, it's very useful. Use a household analogy. Okay. So you would never say for the Smith household, oh, if they just produced everything internally, they would be so much better off than if they relied on foreign imports, meaning things made by people outside the Smith family. So yes, you picture the Smith household, there's a mom and a dad and two teenage kids, for example, and they could just produce everything internally, keep all the work, you know, they could buy local and they could just make their own cars, make their own clothes, grow their own food, make their own electricity, perform their own medical services, all within house, literally, or within backyard. And there, you know, they, they could say, we're not exporting our jobs out of the household, we're providing maximum employment for the Smith family members. Look at how much income we have because we're spending all of our money internally. Like maybe they literally use money and they have, you know, $20 bills and $5 bills and $1 bills that just keep circulating among members of the Smith family. And they could believe that, you know, oh, we've, we've plugged the holes. There's no leakage outside of our household economy. We're not foolishly spending our dollars on people who aren't members of the family or the household. And so you might think that is the way to maximize how many dollars we in the Smith household possess at any given time going forward, because we've plugged the holes. There's no, out, there's no leakage to the outside. You might think that, but I think you can realize that would be nuts. That, that it's not just that that's a foolish goal, but you wouldn't even be accomplishing it. Obviously. In a modern economy with a four-person household, the best way, even if your goal is to maximize how many dollar bills do you have, the best thing is for you to specialize in something at which you're really good, go work out, you know, cater to customers outside the household to enlarge your market, buy things from the cheapest seller, regardless of whether it is someone who's in your family or not and then save as much as possible. That's the way to maximize how many dollars you end up with, not to impose a rule saying we are not allowed to spend dollars on sellers that live outside of our household. And the reason for this, by the way, just, you know, I think everyone listening can agree that yes, what I just said is true, but if you want to put your finger on, but why is it true? It's because if you aren't allowed to spend your dollars on stuff made by people outside the Smith household, then anything you really want you have to produce yourself or your family member has to. And since in general, the four members of the Smith household are not going to be able to make most things as efficiently as somebody on the outside could, they end up using more of their labor hours on those things than it would take to obtain those things if instead they focused on their comparative advantage, did it that way. So let's say Mr. Smith is, I don't know, an accountant. Like that's what he's really good at. Okay. And so if he worked for an outside firm 
maybe he would make $50 an hour on average in terms of the salary they would pay him. Okay. So if he wanted to get some groceries, you know, the groceries to feed the family for a week, if he's willing to spend money on outsiders, then he could, let's say, go to the grocery store and spend $100 and do it. So it would take him two hours if he works for an outside accounting firm. It takes two hours of his labor to ultimately obtain enough groceries to feed the family for a week, right? Because he sells two hours of labor to the outside accounting firm. They give him $100. Then he goes to the grocery store and takes $100 to get the groceries, right? But if he's not allowed to do that, right? If he's like, no, 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 we can't spend $100 at the grocery store because, you know, then we'd lose the 100 We got to keep the money internally. And so let's say he tries to go grow the food himself. Well, it's going to take him a lot more than two hours of his labor to produce enough food to feed the family for a week. I mean, I don't even want to put a number on it because it's it would be a huge number. He, like, he probably couldn't even do it, period. Probably impossible. It would take him more than 24 hours in a day to do it. But let's say, you know, he could. It's certainly going to be a lot bigger than two. So the point is, you might have said, oh, Bob, you know, they're allowed to work for outsiders. Like, you, you know, why don't you use that option? They can work for outsiders, but they just can't spend money on outsiders, right? That's kind of like a mercantilist policy. They go ahead and try to export and accumulate gold and silver, but just don't let your people spend the gold and silver abroad. That's kind of like what the old school mercantilists did. And then, you know, that was what the classical economists came along and tried to explode, that, that sort of mentality, right? So. Yeah, you can do that. But my point still holds, you know, so Smith can still say, oh, I'm going to work for the outside accounting firm to bring in, you know, if they pay me more per hour than I can make domestically, I'll go ahead and do that. You know, he's getting paid. They pay him $50 an hour. My wife and my two kids can't afford to pay me $50 for anything. There's nothing I can do for them that's worth $50 an hour. Okay, that's that's fine. But look at how many hours does he have available to sell to the outside accounting firm. Well, not if he's pinned down spending most of his waking time just growing food because that's what he needs to do in order to get enough to feed his family for the week. So that's what, what ends up happening. There's an opportunity cost. All right, because you might be thinking, well, gee, if Smith just grows his own food in the backyard, it's free. He doesn't have to pay anything for it. So why spend $100 at the grocery store if he's got chickens and stuff in the backyard and he can grow some wheat or whatever, just do it that way. And then you don't have to pay anything. Well, it's not free. If you're measuring it in opportunity cost terms, no, it takes his time. And so for every hour that he devotes to growing food at home, it implicitly costs him $50 because he could have used that hour instead to go work for the accounting firm and earned 50 extra dollars. Okay. So that's the way to think about this stuff. And when you're thinking of it like that, you see that the reason it allows the Smith household not only to have a higher standard of living, but to even just maximize how many dollars they accumulate over time, if that's what their goal actually is, you want to leave on the table the option of buying things from outside the household using your dollars. Because if you, if you buy things from outsiders who can produce them more cheaply than you can, and when I say cheaply, that's I mean in the opportunity cost sense, then that frees up hours for you to then focus on what you're really good at, right? So Smith, Mr. Smith, to maximize the amount of dollars the household ends up accumulating over time, needs to focus his time on selling accounting services. It doesn't mean every waking moment, of course, you know, it's, and in reality, that's true. Like some, you know, people, 
might cu- cut their own lawn rather than hiring the neighborhood kid to do it. And there's reasons for that it might be because your employer, you know, only wants eight hours a day, stuff like that. So, you know, you can make this as realistic and nuanced as you want, but the basic principle is still always going to be true. Okay. So that's, and then the same thing holds at a country level. And again, that's what the classical economists, that was the main point they drove home was that it's, it would be foolish. I'm here, I'm paraphrasing, you know, Adam Smith has a fam- famous passage where he said, it would be wrong or foolish for a, an individual household to try to produce internally what could be purchased more cheaply from outside the household. And what's true for the conduct of a household can scarcely be false for that of a great nation, something like that. That's the point he was making. Hey, everybody, just your usual reminder. If you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps, and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, so I think I've hammered home the sense in which Krugman is right. Now, let's pivot, and let me try to get you to see what's actually wrong with his analysis. So let me go ahead and read just one of those paragraphs again. And then I'll focus in on what I think the problem is. So Krugman says at one point in that excerpt I read before, that is, the benefits of trade shouldn't be measured by the jobs and incomes created in export industries. Those workers could, after all, be doing something else. The gains from trade come instead from the useful goods and services other countries provide to your citizens. And running a trade surplus isn't a win if anything, it means that you're giving the world more than you get, receiving nothing but IOUs in return. Okay, so it's that last part that I want to focus in on because that's extremely misleading or depending on what you think he's saying, just downright false. All right, now, <clears throat> to show that this isn't something about Keynesian ideology, and let me focus this way too, to really isolate what the mistake is. So what Krugman just said, you know, like I say, but strictly speaking, it's not explicitly false. It's just misleading. Whereas the Wall Street Journal, when they had a Robert Barrow op-ed, and then I think it's the journal editors that picked the subtitle of the articles, they picked the, the main title too, by the way. So I'll just, just so you know, if you see authors you know, having an op-ed or something in a paper and the column title is really provocative, the author doesn't pick that. That's the, you know, the newspaper editors pick the title. So don't ever get mad at an author for the title of a piece because that's not the author's fault. Okay, <clears throat> but let me go ahead and, re- and read this. And of course, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 241 for the links to all this stuff. So Robert Barrow, back in 2018, wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. And so let me go ahead and, and read. So this is from Barrow. And then I want to read to you what the Wall Street Journal put as the subtitle. So Barrow, when he's criticizing Trump, said... The Trump theory of international trade seems straightforward. Selling stuff to foreigners is good and buying stuff from foreigners is bad. It's a form of mercantilism. Exports are attractive because they represent domestic production and American jobs. Imports are undesirable because that production and employment otherwise could have happened at home. Simple economic reasoning, however, suggests that this logic is backward. Imports are things we want, whether consumer goods, raw materials, or intermediate goods. Exports are the price we have to pay to get the imports. It would be great, in fact, if we could get more imports without having to pay for them through added exports. Okay, so that's what Robert Barrow said. That's all correct. And it's important, again, if you're talking to somebody, you know, who's new to this stuff, because the, what 
Barrow saying the Trump theory of international trade is, is the default uh, view of a lot of people. And again, it's, it's basically backwards, right? So everything Barrow just said there is true. But now look at what happened. The Wall Street Journal, when they were picking the title and the subtitle to this Barrow piece, the title they picked was Trump and China share a bad idea on trade. Okay. And then the subtitle was imports are things we want and we pay for them with exports. Isn't getting more for less a good thing, right? And so they're, what they're saying, if you see the whole context is, it sounds like they're saying, and it's, you know, this is even more explicit than what Krugman did. It sounds like they're saying, oh, when you think about a trade deficit, far from being a sign of weakness, it's actually showing how savvy we are or how we're exploiting the rest of the world. Because what happens when there's a trade deficit, it's when our imports are bigger than our exports. So if imports are the things we want and we have to pay for them with the exports, well, isn't getting more for less a good thing, right? Shouldn't we want to get more imports in exchange for fewer exports? Doesn't that show that we're, we're ha-ha, winning, right? And that's wrong. Okay, so the, the specific mistake is we're already measuring in dollar terms, right? So when, when you're thinking of a trade deficit, it's not saying, oh, in this period, you know, the U.S. exported a certain amount of software services, financial services, tourist visits to Disney World and whatever else the U.S. exports, aircraft parts. And in exchange, you know, Japan sent us some cars, China sent us some sweaters and electronics, Saudi Arabia sent us some oil. Da, 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 da. And then the question is just, do we want to get more stuff from foreigners in exchange for what we're sending to them? If that were the, were the issue, then yeah, of course we would. But that's not what it means when we run a trade deficit because it, the, the items are already measured in dollar terms. So if you run a trade deficit, you say, oh, we, we imported $50 billion of stuff from Japan, but we only exported $45 billion of stuff to Japan. So we had a $5 billion trade deficit. The way to interpret that is not to say, ha ha, we drove a hard bargain and we, and we got them to send us more stuff than we had to pay for it. No, when we say we imported $50 billion of stuff from Japan, how much did we pay for it? $50 billion. That's what it means to say we imported $50 billion worth of stuff. And when they, from their perspective, imported $45 billion worth of stuff from the United States, how much did they pay for it? $45 billion. That's what it means to say they imported $45 billion worth of stuff. So it's, it's incorrect. Do not think if we have a trade deficit, that means we got more stuff at a better, on better terms than they got from us because we're already measuring it in terms of how much we paid for it, the price that was involved in the purchases. All right, so this is crystal clear at a household level. So go back to the Smith household and suppose the two kids work at the mall and they both earn $10,000 a year in the, you know, the wages that they're paid. Maybe the teenage daughter works at a clothing store, you know, one of those fancy places that you go in and it's, whoosh, 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 and it's, you know, showing you all these clothes and everything. You're like, oh yeah, man, that would be so much more popular if I had that shirt. Okay. So she works at one of those stores and she earns 10,000. The guy, let's say he works at the food court and he sells pretzels. All right. And he also earned $10,000. Now the daughter, you know, the father comes home and asks him, okay, kids, how did you do this year? And the daughter explains that out of her $10,000, she spent $7,000 on you know, her car and clothes and going to the movies with her friends and stuff like that. 
in the remaining 3000 she put into a savings account at her bank. You know, she was in her checking originally and she just transferred over to a savings account. The son, on the other hand, he spent the whole 10000 on goodies. And on top of that, he bought some more stuff and he used his credit cards to pay for it, right? So his total credit card indebtedness went up, let's say $2,000 over the year, right? So he consumed $12,000 worth of stuff with his $10,000 in wages from pretzel services. And, you know, so how do you account for the gap? Well, he ran up $2,000 in credit card debt, all right? So most parents would praise the daughter and scold the son. But if you had just read Krugman's column, you might understandably say to the girl, what are you doing? You gave the community more than you got. You gave them $10,000 worth of services that you provided. And what did you get in exchange for? You only got $7,000 worth of stuff. And what do you have to show for it? That gap of $3,000? Well, nothing but an IOU from the bank. You think about it, right? The fact that you're looking at that $3,000 now that's in your savings account, does that satisfy your hunger? Does that give you joy the way looking at a painting would? No. All it is is an IOU. The bank now owes you that $3,000 when you want it. All right? So don't think that running a trade surplus is a win. If anything, it means that you gave the community more than you got, receiving nothing but IOUs in return. Right, so everyone see how that's literally the logic Krugman just used to show that a country running a trade surplus isn't winning. And then on the flip side, turning to his son, he could sit, give him a high five and be like, <laughs> very crafty, my boy. You were able to convince the community to give you $12,000 worth of goodies, whereas you only provided them with $10,000 worth of pretzel services. You drive a hard bargain, my boy. Good job. Right? Does, does that work? Is it, is it a reflection of the son's craftiness and his ability to negotiate? No. He paid $12,000 for the $12,000 worth of stuff that he bought. And he only earned $10,000 in current services that he provided. And so the, how did he finance that? Well, now he's in $2,000 in extra debt. He has issued IOUs to the community. All right. So it's crystal clear at the household level why Krugman's arguments are, like I say, either extremely misleading or just downright false, depending on how merciful you are on the day you read it. But it's definitely not spot-on analysis, okay? So at the country level, just as at the household level, there's nothing foolish or wrong about exporting more goods and services in a given time period than you import and accumulating financial assets to account for that gap, just like at the household level, there's nothing wrong with living below your means, right? The, the average worker during his prime working years is probably, and it's a wise thing in most cases, living below his or her means, consuming less than they earn in income in order to save the difference, to bolster their savings so that later when they're retired, for example, they can, you know, they've got a huge stockpile of wealth that they can start drawing on. Right. So again, with all this stuff, just think of it, think of the household analogy, not to extend it. So now you might. So that's why there's nothing foolish about having a trade surplus. And, and again, that's more generally, that's the problem I see is a lot of economists when they're trying to explode old mercantilist fallacies and then they, they want to defend trade deficits and show how trade deficits are not a sign of weakness. They often overshoot and end up making arguments that imply or even literally state 
that a trade surplus is a sign of weakness. All right, so on, on this one, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Russia's in a great spot because of what's happening here. And it's trades. Krugman is right that here the trade surplus is an indication that something's wrong. But that's because it's not the result of voluntary interactions, right? It's that the West is actively impeding the flow of imports into Russia. And that's why their trade surplus shot up. Now, I don't know if three years ago, if Russia had a trade surplus, I don't know what their statistics are like. But I'm saying if in the when things are normal and people can make voluntary decisions, if a country happens to be running a trade surplus, that's not a sign of weakness or a sign that something's wrong. Just like if you looked at an individual household and it's saving money, you know, it's, it's consuming less than its income in a given time period, that's certainly not a sign of weakness or that they're doing something wrong. Another way of thinking about it is just a simple global accounting on net for planet Earth, at least until the aliens show up, the trade balance has to be zero for the planet as a whole. And so if some countries are running trade deficits, other countries have to be running trade surpluses. So just like the, it's like the flip side of the old mercantilist thing that just, you know, mercantilism, old school mercantilism, besides just being wrong, would also breed hostility because it was a beggar thy neighbor philosophy. There was no way that every country on earth could run a trade surplus. It's not, it was impossible for every country's citizens to be accumulating gold and silver at the expense of, you know, other nations. If one country on net was gaining gold and silver because their exports exceeded their imports, that meant there had to be at least one other country somewhere that had the opposite going on, where it was on net losing gold and silver because its people were importing more than they were exporting. So mercantilism was not something that could be carried out successfully by all the nations together and so they could get along in harmony. If one of them was more successful at it, that meant somebody else had to be less successful at it. There's a complication there of, well, what about the countries that have mines and are producing gold and stuff? So the statements are still true, which is you might say, okay, well, maybe for a country that literally is producing gold and silver, that we can give them a break and say they're allowed to export some because it's like they're going to run out. All right. Okay, now, last point I'll make in this episode to take it even next, next level. You might have thought, okay, so... Bob's saying, think about it from a household level and at the household level in general, when you run a trade deficit, that's a sign of weakness. Now, maybe it's because you're bleeding away your past accumulated strength, like when you're retired. And so, you know, it's not that it's wrong for a retiree to start consuming his wealth, right? To start drawing down on his assets as he goes into his, you know, 70s and 80s and so forth, because that was part of the plan. And that, you know, that's counterbalancing when he was younger and he built up his assets. But we can see that that's unsustainable. And so at a country level, you might think you probably don't want to trade deficit. So isn't Trump right after all? Not necessarily. Okay. So what can happen or just, you know, just to give you a specific example, imagine a small island nation, right? My, my novel Minerva reminds some of you folks that when I was in grad school, I wrote a novel that involved an ANCAP society. I'll link it in the show notes page if you're curious. And so in that story, for sure, that it was a small island nation that was, uh, you know, ANCAPs took, took it over, implemented anarcho-capitalist policies. And so in that environment, with that scenario, that little island nation ran huge trade deficits in its early years. 
Because if you just think about it physically, what would happen? It's good. It's this little island in the middle of the ocean, and it's going to eventually be transformed into this economic powerhouse, right? Assuming you know you agree with Rothbard's analysis, that's what would happen. So how would it get there? Well, it would make sense early on that it would import on net a lot more than it exported in terms of goods and services, right? That particularly goods. It has to build a bunch of factories. It has to build a bunch of airports. It has to build a bunch of, you know, oil mining rigs. It has to build a bunch of um, skyscrapers. It has to build a modern road network and subway system and so forth. Power generation, all this, maybe nuclear power plants. It's got to build all that stuff. And it's not going to have all the materials it needs on hand. It's this small little island in the ocean. Yeah, there might be a lot of fish or something. There might maybe it happens to be near, um, you know, some oil deposits that are way down in the, in the ocean floor. But it doesn't have a lot of farmland. It might not have a lot of forests. It might not have a lot of uh, nickel deposits or whatnot. And so, how does it get to all that stuff from foreigners, from places around the world that are more hospitable to producing those things or to yielding those things? And so it makes sense. It's perfectly efficient to get that island nation up and running as fast as possible that the rest of the world sends all that stuff as they engage in a massive construction program. And then, you know, 20 years later, the thing is a modern powerhouse. It's the most advanced nation on the planet with a huge airport, you know, skyline that dwarfs Manhattan or Dubai or Hong Kong or whatever in terms of all the skyscrapers and everything, modern subway system, modern medical facilities and so forth, huge uh, you know, data processing centers maybe, all kinds of accounting services, you know, maybe, maybe like it's the corporate headquarters of the world is because of the tax advantages and all kinds of corporations relocated their headquarters there, all that stuff. And it's at that point providing all kinds of services that it exports to the world, like financial services and things like that, maybe a lot of intangibles. But in terms of the accounting, how does it pay for it? Well, early on, the, the ANCAP people would have been selling claims on that future output to the rest of the world. And that's how they would have paid for those imports. Right? And so initially, there would that island nation would have run huge trade deficits that maybe would have shrunk over time. But there's nothing wrong about that. And you say, okay, but how do I apply that to the household level? Well, it's easier to look at it at the, the corporate level. So in a corporate level, it'd be like if the company issued a bunch of bonds in order to raise the money to go to build new factories so that they're more productive in a couple of years down the road. So in terms of the, the corporate accounting, it's not that the corporation suffered a huge loss in that year, right? If they, you know, let's say they had a billion dollars in sales, you know, revenue from their products and services to their customers. and it was, you know, they spent $900 million on the cost of goods sold. And then they also, say, floated $200 million in bonds to spend on the new factory. You wouldn't say, oh, well, that's $1.1 billion that they just spent, you know, that, that were their expenses for that year. And they only had a billion in revenue, so they had a huge loss. You wouldn't say that. Because that $200 million that they raised through bonds and then used to build a factory that wasn't part of the cost of the goods sold that year. 
right? So it's not that that should be compared to the billion dollars in revenue they receive from their sales. So that's not a loss, even though in a sense, the company bought more goods and services from the rest, from, you know, the non-company that had sold to the non-company, right? More money flowed out of the corporation to pay for goods and services than people sent money into the corporation's coffers to buy goods and services. That's still, that's true, but it doesn't mean the company was unprofitable that period. And so that, again, that's the mistake that Trump was making when he was thinking about trade is I could just tell, I think he was thinking it was like a P&L statement for the country as a whole, and that a trade deficit meant we lost. And that's not correct, as this, you know, the corporation example I just gave showed. For the, uh, you know, for even the individual household, you could do it like this. You could say, you know, when going back to when the father is asking the kid and the teenage son says, oh, I earned $10,000 in wages, but I spent $12,000 on goodies. And I, you know, financed that by running up $2,000 in credit card debt. That's clearly unsustainable. And you can see how a father at that age for the kid might tell him that was wrong. Don't do that. But if instead the kid ran up debt because he went to medical school and counting the tuition he had to pay, he spent more that year than he earned in income that year. And he increased his indebtedness to outsiders, namely increasing student loans. That's not necessarily unproductive or foolish or unsustainable, that policy. Okay, now, <laughs> in our times, actually, most student debt probably is foolish, but you get what I'm the general point I'm making. In principle, it's okay to, even at the household individual level, it's okay to accumulate debt if what you're doing is enhancing your productive services or your, your productivity that's going to boost your wages down the road. There's nothing wrong with that. That, that, you know, that could be a very wise move. And that's not the same thing. It's not equivalent to somebody who's just going to the movies and buying sports cars and stuff and, and using debt to finance it. Okay. So I will stop there. Thank you for your attention, folks. And I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.